Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia, and this is one that goes out by request. Today's case is quite interesting because I think for many people, what happened to Catherine Genovese, aka Kitty, is the epitome of our worst nightmare in every aspect. There is a misconception about being in crowded places where we tend to feel safer because there are simply too many witnesses around for anything bad to happen. But the ugly truth of the matter is that there is a large and ever-growing body of research that points to a simple yet disturbing and completely counterintuitive reality. The larger the crowd you're in at any given time, the less likely you are to receive help if anything bad does happen to you. There are many psychological theories and concepts that have helped scientists and scholars explain this phenomenon, and I'm going to talk about them all. But before I do, I want to tell you about the murder of 28-year-old Kitty Genovese. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Catherine Suzanne Genovese was born on July 7th of 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, United States, and was the oldest of five siblings in the Genovese family. It's unclear if her parents, Rachel and Vincent Genovese, donned her the affectionate nickname Kitty, or if she gave it to herself, but that's what she went by. Kitty was raised in the Park Slope area of Brooklyn, a quaint area sprawling with vintage shops, local businesses, and working-class people, mostly large Italian and Irish families. Kitty attended Prospect Heights High School, which in her time was an all-girls school, and was known to be a self-assured, independent, and overall a great person. She was an exceptional student and known to be a staple in her class. Kitty enjoyed her life in Brooklyn and fit in quite well, so much so that when her mother, Rachel, actually witnessed a murder in 1953 and wanted to pick up the family and leave to the state of Connecticut, Kitty wanted to stay in New York. So, after Kitty graduated Prospect Heights, she stayed in Brooklyn with her grandparents while her family moved away to New Canaan, Connecticut. She was working clerical jobs after she graduated high school, but she wanted something a bit faster paced. She really liked the hustle and bustle of New York, and she fell in love with her neighborhood and surrounding area especially, and so Kitty accepted a position as a bartender at Ev's 11th Hour Bar on Jamaica Avenue and 193rd Street in Queens. It was here, at this bar, that Kitty would actually be arrested for running a small, on-the-down-low, horse-race betting operation, with her mugshot being the most widely used and seen photos of her. Despite this arrest, it wasn't long before Kitty took on a management position at the bar. Whether that be a formal title or not, anyone who's worked at a small business knows that sometimes you end up taking on more responsibility than you're compensated for at times, but you do it because you love the business and it's all in a good day's work. At this point in her life, Kitty was just trying to work as much as possible at the bar and save as much money as she could so that one day she could open her own Italian restaurant in New York. After some time, Kitty moved to 8270 Austin Street in the Kew Gardens neighborhood with her girlfriend, Mary Ann Ziolanka. The two were dating, but closeted to most, with many thinking of them as roommates, but the pair met at a nightclub in the Greenwich Village. 
Kitty was working hard as a bartender, being very involved with Ev's 11th hour bar, and was enjoying her young adult life with Mary in their second floor Austin Street apartment, living above a storefront and planning for their future together. Little did Kitty know that she would in fact never get to open her own restaurant or even attempt it, because her life would be cut short during a brutal attack, the details of which would get twisted six ways from Sunday in the media, which subsequently dubbed her the poster girl for the psychological phenomenon now known as the bystander effect. In the early morning hours of March 13, 1964, Kitty had just finished up her shift at Ev's 11th hour bar and was heading out the door of the restaurant into her red Fiat to drive home. She arrived within a few blocks of her apartment in Kew Gardens at approximately 3.15 in the morning. But because the street she lived on was lined with storefronts and there wasn't a whole lot of parking, Kitty had to park her vehicle at a railroad station which was about 100 feet or 30 meters or so from the alleyway door to her apartment. As Kitty walked down Austin Street, she was oblivious to the figure following behind her. She didn't know this, but when Kitty was driving home from work around 2.30 a.m. and was stopped at the intersection of Hoover Ave waiting for the red light to change, a man by the name of Winston Mosley spotted her and without any rhyme or reason, decided to follow her home. While Kitty was parking her red Fiat at the railway station, Winston parked his vehicle at a bus stop only a few feet away and waited for Kitty to exit her vehicle. Armed with a hunting knife, Winston began chasing Kitty and began stabbing her as the two wrestled under a street lamp in front of a bookstore. Kitty called out for help, saying, Oh God, I've been stabbed! But reportedly, not many neighbors who were awake at the time could distinguish Kitty's cries amongst the regular chaotic noise of New York, despite it being 3 in the morning. Richard Moser, a neighbor in the Kew Gardens area, shouted outside his apartment window, leave that girl alone, which was thankfully enough to scare Winston Mosley away, and he took off, but not before stabbing Kitty successfully twice in the back. Kitty was able to gather enough of her strength to begin crawling towards the alleyway door of her apartment, but unfortunately for her, several witnesses saw Winston Mosley run back to his vehicle parked at the bus station and drive away only to return a few minutes later when he realized that police were not coming. This time, with Winston sporting a wide-brimmed hat to hide his face, he found Kitty Genovese once again, this time collapsed onto the pavement and hardly hanging onto consciousness, in dire need of medical attention. Mosley would continue to stab Kitty several more times and would sexually assault her before taking the $49 in her wallet and leaving again, this time with Kitty clinging onto life on the New York concrete at the back door to her apartment building. There were at least two other witnesses who had phoned police either after hearing or seeing Kitty being attacked on the street, and another witness by the name of Sophia Farrar actually found Kitty after Winston had left her the second time and opted to stay by her side until the ambulance finally arrived at 4.15 a.m. There was evidence to suggest that Kitty Genovese tried her hardest to fight the attack, including defensive wounds on her hands and arms, but ultimately, Kitty would die en route to hospital that night. 
Police's first interview was Mary Ann Ziolanko, Kitty's girlfriend, and she was questioned by Detective Mitchell Sang beginning at only 7 a.m., which was only hours after Kitty died at the back door of their apartment. The subsequent interrogation was carried out by Detectives John Carroll and Jerry Burns. Mary Ann was initially considered a suspect at first, although much of the interrogation was centered around her taboo for the times homosexual relationship with Kitty and their sexual history, rather than Mary Ann's whereabouts at the time of the attack. At the end of it all, Mary Ann would be cleared, and she would be the one who's responsible for identifying Kitty at the morgue, because if you remember, the entirety of Kitty's family was living in Connecticut. And so, it would be Mary Ann Zialanko who would come face to face with the 13 stab wounds on Kitty Genovese's body, not even including the defensive wounds. With nothing really to tie Mary Ann to the crime, police were initially at a standstill. Kitty's murder had no rhyme or reason about it. The attack was completely opportunistic, and whoever had done it was able to prolong it despite being seen by several witnesses. However, the standstill didn't last for very long because six days later, Winston Mosley would be arrested in the Ozone Park area of Queens, New York, under suspicion of robbery after a stolen television set was discovered in his vehicle. Mosley drove a white Chevrolet Corvair, and during the investigation into this suspected robbery, a detective by the name of John Tartaglia recalled that one of the witnesses who had seen Kitty's murderer speed away from the scene was driving the same vehicle. Once detectives Mitchell Sang and John Carroll were made aware of this fact, they brought Winston Mosley into questioning. Before too long, the detectives had Winston Mosley confessing to the murder of Kitty Genovese. He was only 28 years old at the time, originating from Ozone Park in Queens, and was working at the Remington Rand, preparing parts for new digital computers. The guy was super ordinary. He was married, he had kids, and he had no prior documented criminal history whatsoever. This was shocking to police because Mosley's confession regarding the murder of Kitty Genovese not only came with detailed accounts of this attack and his motive, but Mosley also willingly gave up the details of several other crimes. He had told police that at approximately 2 a.m. on March 13th, he had left his wife in bed with the sole purpose of seeking out a female victim. He then told police that he actually enjoyed killing women because they were quote-unquote easier. And he fully admitted that it was at the intersection of Hoover Ave where he spotted Kitty in her red Fiat coming home from her shift at the bar and he decided then and there to make her his next victim. Yes, you heard me correctly. I said next. Mosley had also confessed to two other murders. Mosley confessed to the murder of Annie Mae Johnson, who was shot and burned to death in her South Ozone Park apartment only a few weeks before Kitty's murder, as well as the brutal murder of 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who was killed in her parents' home in Springfield Gardens, New York, in July of 1963. In addition to all of this, Mosley began further divulging the details of upwards of 40 different burglaries that he had committed. And lastly, Mosley would say something in particular that would become central to the details of the murder of Kitty Genovese and subsequently helped launch this case into one of the most famous cautionary tales regarding the human psyche to date. 
This very infamous thing that Winston Mosley said was after he was arrested, Chief Detective Albert Seidman asked Mosley how on earth he could dare attack young Katie Genovese in front of apparently so many witnesses at night under a street lamp, acting like a spotlight on him and Kitty wrestling in the middle of the street. Mind you, Winston Mosley fully returned to the scene to finish the job despite knowing at least Richard Moser saw him because he yelled at Mosley to leave Kitty alone. Mosley's reply would help reduce this case to one central idea that would initiate the relatively inaccurate onslaught of newspaper reporting. Mosley looked at Chief Seedman when asked about his confidence in being able to kill Kitty despite the presence of a witness and replied, quote, I knew they wouldn't do anything. People never do. Two weeks after the murder, on March 27th, the New York Times published an article authored by Martin Gansberg that was titled, 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call Police. Although this title was later corrected to 38, this was the first mention to the public regarding the number of potential witnesses present at the time of Kitty Genovese's death. In this article, Gansberg mentions what was known at the time as a police call box, a sort of specialized phone booth to reach emergency services, being located only a short distance from where Kitty died. And yet, despite there being apparently 38 people who knew what was going on, nobody had bothered to use it. In one quote, a Kew Gardens resident who claimed to have heard Kitty's cries for help just didn't want to get involved potentially chalking up the dispute to a domestic one between two people in a relationship. Another resident of the area was quoted in the New York Journal American saying that he did hear a woman scream from his window, but upon opening the window, he didn't see anything, and so he didn't do anything. This resident further elaborated on the fact that, of course, next time this happens, he would know better and know to call police, but Chief Albert Seidman refuted that and echoed the same sentiment that many psychologists do regarding this case. He said that the people of Kew Gardens likely wouldn't lift a finger even still to this day if Kitty's murder were to happen all over again. But it turns out that unbeknownst to Seedman, this lack of action can't be simply attributed to the apathy of New Yorkers. The tendency for a witness to do nothing when in the presence of an abundance of people is coined today as the bystander effect. And it turns out that as humans, we are all dispositioned to behave the same way. You can think about the bystander effect as an antonym for a good Samaritan. It's the tendency to continue driving past someone who's pulled over on the highway with their hazard lights on. It's what happens when someone faints in public and a person yells, somebody call 911, only for everyone to just kind of look at each other until someone finally does it. It's the feeling you get when you see an abundance of trash on the sidewalk, fresh roadkill, a spilled coffee in the middle of the mall. Someone will clean it up. Someone will call 911. Someone will stop and help that person. Just not me. It turns out that at any given time, if you are the victim of an accident or a crime, the likelihood of receiving help from emergency services or from an individual decreases steadily as the number of witnesses around you increases. At the time of Kitty Genovese's murder, the New York Times editor Abraham Rosenthal claimed to have asked several behavioral scientists to explain why people literally would witness slash hear a murder taking place and not do anything, and at the time, none of them had a legitimate scientific answer. That was until now. 
Despite what we know now to be an inaccurate reporting on the number of witnesses who were present at the time of Katie's murder, the whole situation did prompt psychologists to delve into research about this very counterintuitive behavioral phenomenon. The most obvious thing to researchers was this omnipresent diffusion of responsibility amongst the witnesses that night. Research would further classify this as de-individuation, also known as loss of self-awareness in a group setting. There is a decreased overall personal accountability for a task at hand or well-being of others when there are many other people present, and in certain situations, such as during group projects in school, many people may tend to lean into their sense of de-individuation and allow their morals and obligations to slack off and take a backseat because of that responsibility diffusion. On a small scale, this can manifest as something called social loafing, where one person in a group facing a task will take a back seat and subscribe themselves to the idea that someone will take care of their portion of the task as long as the group isn't being rewarded on an individual's basis. But if there are a large number of people in a public setting when there is a crime or an emergency happening and everyone in this large crowd is experiencing de-individuation, obviously this can cause serious problems and it's not just going to annoy the group members of your project. It's much deeper than that. Onlookers to an emergency may feel unsure if they're doing the right thing, they may second guess if emergency services are really necessary, they may second guess if they really did hear a woman scream, maybe it was just a stray cat, maybe they feel scared of the repercussions of actions, possibly embarrassed about making a scene, wasting emergency services, or a number of things. And there are many other variables at play, such as situational ambiguity, cultural differences, group memberships, and more. But social psychologists John M. Darley and Bib Latane went on an endeavor to prove their hypotheses about why so many people witnessed Kitty Genovese die and lacked to take action. And these two social psychologists were the ones who pioneered the research into the bystander effect, which is a term that they coined, by the way. The results from these research efforts are best culminated by the work of Dr. Harold Takushian from Fordham University in New York, who is a social personality psychologist and conducted research on the degree of action of bystanders when witness to a public crime in the 80s. Dr. Takushian set up mock pit-pocketing incidences, bike thefts, and even auto break-ins, and shockingly, or I suppose unshockingly now, the overall witness intervention rate was only 11% across all scenarios in both Canada and the United States. Despite the New York Times claiming that 38 witnesses were present at the time of Kitty's murder being heavily disputed, the premise and moral of the story still remains the same. Kitty Genovese was murdered in the middle of a busy New York street under a street light, and there were numerous people who publicly recounted hearing and seeing her being attacked. Not to mention the countless witnesses who saw Winston Mosley flee the scene, only to return and be able to finish the job, and that didn't include anyone who heard or saw the attack but didn't say anything at all. Those are just the witnesses that we know about. The other aspect of this case that could account for the perceived lack of action on part of the residents of Kew Gardens could be the absence of an organized emergency call system, because before Kitty's murder, 911 did not exist and her story was a huge factor into implementing that system, which was adopted into the United States shortly after 1964, the year she was murdered. 
Just as there were countless witnesses who dismissed Kitty's cries for help that night, there were a few neighbors in the vicinity who did call emergency services, as I mentioned before, but mind you, because 911 did not exist, if you needed police, fire, or ambulance, you had to dial zero for the operator and hope they weren't busy directing another call and were able to put you through. Even still, it's unclear if police even prioritized the attack happening on Kitty as it was happening when one of the neighbors did call because apparently, as predicted by John M. Darley and Bib Latane, this neighbor was second-guessing himself and was unsure if phoning the police was really necessary. As a consequence of this second-guessing, it's debated on whether or not this neighbor was really able to relay the true seriousness of what was happening to police. We know that 38 witnesses is a completely fabricated number, but the retelling of Kitty's story using that number of witnesses is prolific in every single intro to psychology textbook sold in North America. Like I mentioned, likely because the incident perfectly encapsulates the bystander effect. Social loafing, diffusion of responsibility, de-individuation, you name it. And despite those details being refuted, what we do know is that Winston Mosley was charged with the murder of Kenny Genovese, as he should be. However, interestingly enough, he was not prosecuted for the other two murders he confessed to at the time, that of Annie Mae Johnson and Barbara Kralik. This likely had to do a lot with the fact that at the time of this confession, police had 18-year-old Alvin Mitchell in custody for the murder of Barbara Kralik instead. As well, Mosley stated that he killed Annie Mae Johnson by shooting her twice in the stomach and four times in the backside with a 22 caliber rifle before setting her house on fire, but the coroner at the time determined that she had died from puncture wounds. Obviously then, police thought this confession was false, but upon exhuming her body, they discovered that in fact she had been shot and the six bullets total were visualized on x-ray and removed from her body. Despite this, the prosecution never pursued it in court and Mosley would only be charged for the murder of Kitty Genovese, a trial that ended on June 15th of 1964 in a death sentence. The presiding judge said after the sentence was read that, quote, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. And a monster he certainly was. It would do this case a great injustice to simply skim over the fact that Winston Mosley pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to the murder of Kitty Genovese, and only a few years into his sentence, he managed to escape prison, just like Alan Legere, who I discussed in my last episode. Mosley's not guilty plea was followed by a testimony of his own accord on the stand in his own defense, where he openly detailed the events of the brutal attack on Kitty as well as his other extremely deviated and highly disturbing crimes, or at least crimes he claimed to have committed. A psych evaluation would later reveal that Winston Mosley, on top of it all, was also a necrophile. He seemed to thoroughly enjoy the retelling of his crimes, and this was seemingly the basis for his insanity plea, an angle that he worked heavily to no avail because obviously I told you that he was in fact convicted. He would argue three years later in court that his sentence should be reduced to life in prison to avoid the death penalty, and this was coming shortly after the state of New York had abolished capital punishment, so it's no surprise that his sentence was in fact commuted to life in prison. However, the foundation for his argument to do so wasn't that the state had just banned the death penalty, but instead, 
He argued that during his trial, he should have had more time to stand up there and argue his insanity plea. You know, as if he didn't get enough time on the stand describing to the courtroom and Kitty's family exactly how he killed her and why. If you weren't already convinced that this guy was incredibly dangerous, in 1968, only one year after his sentence was commuted, he escaped from custody while being transported to the Mayer Memorial Hospital in Buffalo, New York. Like Alan Legere, the monster of Miramichi, Mosley would seize his opportunity during this transport and fled to a nearby residence where he was able to stay undetected for three days. That was until the owners of the home returned and he took them hostage, sexually assaulted the wife, took their car, and fled again to Grant Island, New York before wreaking havoc on another family there. Thankfully, he was captured shortly after and Winston Mosley would spend the rest of his days in prison, now with the addition of a 15-year sentence for running away and everything else he did while on the run. But he did die in 2016, not without numerous attempts at trying to get parole, all which were denied, likely in large part due to his self-victimization habits. One quote even has Winston Mosley saying to the courtroom during a parole hearing that he should be forgiven for his crimes on the basis that he paid his dues since the attacks on the women he hurt only lasted a few minutes or an hour, but now he has to suffer for life. Yeah, the parole was denied. <laughs> As I mentioned before, the bystander effect, although disputed through the legitimacy of the facts of Kitty's case, is a relevant topic of social psychological debate and one that has proven to transcend North America at the very least. Two very famous cases demonstrating the diffusion of responsibility in emergency situations have come up quite a bit in my research, and to end the episode today, I'm going to tell you a bit about both of them. In October of 2009, a female student whose name is not publicly disclosed, likely because she was a minor at the time, was beaten and sexually assaulted by multiple people in the courtyard beside her high school campus during a homecoming dance. As many as 20 witnesses are believed to have at least been aware of the attack taking place, yet police were not notified until two hours into it. Although this young girl survived, the next story featuring 53-year-old Raymond Zach from Almeida, California, United States would not end on such a positive note. Raymond would walk into the water off of the Crown Memorial Beach in 2011 in California and was in there for almost an hour while emergency services debated on who was qualified enough to rescue him as he struggled to stay afloat and the dozens of civilians gathered on the beach witnessing the event were none the wiser. They all fully expected somebody to do something, but nobody did. I think the main takeaway from today's episode comes from the premise of the ABC primetime television show hosted by John Quinones titled, What Would You Do? If you've never seen it, the show was filmed entirely to test the bystander effect. Actors would set up scenarios that would force unsuspecting people to become aware of a mild to moderately troubling situation in public. And the whole premise of the show was that these people would either react or not, and then their reactions would be analyzed. Many people who chose not to act on the situation in question would refuse to be filmed after, and their faces would then be blurred on TV, which I think brings light to the dramatic change in attitude once the curtain is pulled back on that perceived diffusion of responsibility. The truth of the matter is that you are responsible, and if it was you as a witness to a crime, a drowning, an emergency, what would you do? 
Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I am so, so grateful for your continued support, seriously. If you're new around here, feel free to follow the show so you don't miss another episode, and you can follow me on Instagram too for updates about the cases and to know when the next one's coming out. I'll talk to you all soon. Remember, if you see something, say something. Stay safe, everybody. Mm -hmm.